From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. Land Stories, Episode 19, Alarm Box 23. As one walks around Mount Hope Cemetery in Lansing, one notices many graves, some of which are of Lansing's most famous residents of the past. In fact, every time I drive by that cemetery, if I'm at the uh, intersection where one can see the uh, old mausoleum, it's very easy to uh, daydream for a moment about all of the lives that have passed through the years as Lansing has come and grown and developed. And as you're walking around the cemetery, if one chooses to do so, you notice several things in cemetery that you would typically find, but also something that you wouldn't typically find, and that would be Alarm Box 23, which is a uh, exactly as I just said, it is an old fire alarm box. Some of you may remember that at one time, uh, Lansing and other cities around the United States had these things. They were call boxes that were located on the street, looked kind of like a sign, except they were red, and they were the fire alarm that anybody could pull if they noticed a fire. And the alarm box number 23 was the firebox that was first called when the Kearns Hotel fire broke out at 5.30 in the morning on December the 11th of 1934. And the Kearns Hotel fire left a legacy in Lansing that survives to this day. And if anybody in Lansing is ever in the unfortunate circumstance of surviving a fire, or being in a fire, I should say, I suppose if you survived it, you would be more fortunate than the alternative, you may be seen by a group called Box 23. And Box 23 is a very special and unique group uh, that exists in Lansing. And they are around to support firefighters on the scene of a fire. And Box 23 takes its name from Alarm Box 23 and the Box 23 Club that has 23 people in it to this day that serve in this absolutely vital role takes its name from this fire and the alarm box, Alarm Box 23, that was called when the fire was first noticed or at least when it was noticed by somebody who was in the vicinity of a call box. How did the Kearns Hotel fire break out? Why is the Kearns Hotel fire one amongst the many that have occurred in Lansing's history that survives in historical memory? And what are the lasting legacies of that fire? It, it turns out the fire had a, a tremendous lasting legacy in Michigan, uh, not only in permanently changing the lives of all those who were affected by the fire, but it also led to some pretty important changes in the state legislature, and we're going to talk about that. 1934 is the year, therefore, that comes into focus, and the Kearns Hotel fire breaks out in the early morning hours of the 11th of December, 1934, which was a Tuesday. Now, that previous Monday, December 10th, is part of where the story begins, but it also partially begins way back before that. Actually, all the way back into the year in 1908 uh, and in 1909. In 1908, the uh, Michigan State Constitution 
was rewritten, substantially so. And that state constitution had in it uh, wording that stated in the event of a, a dispute over the result of an election that the state legislature or the governor could call a special section uh, or convene a special session of the state legislature. And that is exactly what Governor Comstock was faced with in November and December of 1934. So the November 1934 election took place amidst a uh, actually a very dramatically changing political situation, not only in Michigan, but in the United States as a whole. And that background political information is actually really important to the uh, lasting impact of the Kearns Hotel fire, believe it or not, and we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But before we get to that point, we have to take a step back to the political situation that's going on in Lansing and why the uh, legislature was called by the governor into town for a special session. November 1934, the election takes place. And for the Office of Attorney General, the Democratic candidate disputed the election results in Wayne County. Uh, he had anticipated that he would win the election, or at least it would be close. And when the results were counted, or at least reported to him, he had lost by a fairly substantial margin. And believing that some sort of fraud had taken place, he lodged a formal complaint alleging exactly that. And because the state constitution was vague as to what procedures existed or policies existed to deal with allegations of election fraud, this turned out to be an ongoing issue throughout the month of November of 1934. So Governor Comstock convenes the state legislature in a special session, and they are called to Lansing, and the session is meant to begin on December 10th, which is a Monday. Lansing in 1934 had some similarities that it, it, it has with Lansing of 2023, but it had some differences as well. One of the big similarities in Lansing at the time was the prominence of the state legislature. After all, uh, if nothing else, the state legislature, when it meets, uh, you have a lot of people coming into Lansing. A lot of people that are very influential, actually, as it turns out. After all, they are the people that write laws. And then, of course, the other branches of government uh, are housed in Lansing as well. And so, therefore, the state government has an important presence in the city of Lansing. It is, after all, why the state legislature founded Lansing to begin with. So, in the 1930s and in the decades that preceded that and in the decades that have followed the 1930s, when the legislature is in session, there's an increased presence of people in downtown Lansing, people that do things like go to hotels and go to coffee shops and cafes and restaurants and bars, and all of that was certainly the same in uh, the 1930s as it is now. Actually, it was probably a little bit more back then than it is now. With the center of commerce in Lansing being more concentrated in downtown uh, than it is now. We've had many decades of suburban uh, growth and expansion since then. And so this area looks a little bit different than it did back then in the 1930s. In fact, this fire took place now over 90 years ago or almost 90 years ago. With that said, imagine being in downtown Lansing. And it's December of 1934. So there's obviously the holiday season in the air. It's Christmas time. The legislature has been called into town for a special session to deal with a potentially very thorny issue. And so there is an air of excitement uh, that comes with this set of circumstances. 
So the governor has convened the legislature, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon of Monday, December the 10th, 1934, this special session begins. For the next several hours, the lawmakers, many of whom, by the way, have booked rooms and are staying in the Kearns Hotel, begin debating what exactly they're going to do for the special session. And the debate really centered on that day of December the 10th of number one, what was the purpose of the special session? In other words, why had the governor called the legislature into session? And then second of all, they debated how that special session should even run. Uh, in particular, whether or not it should be a joint session between the state Senate and the state House. Ultimately, most of the legislative effort on December the 10th, therefore, focused on those two issues. Towards the end of the day, both chambers uh, adjourned for the day, agreeing to meet the next day. As lawmakers did at the time, they retreated to their overnight lodging. Now, the legislature in the 1930s was a little bit different than it is now. Um, Michigan has undergone some dramatic changes since then. The uh, makeup of the state house and the state senate is different. The uh, current state of Michigan constitution stems from the 1960s, actually. So it was written about 30 years after the Kearns Hotel fire. And it changed the way uh, Michigan's house and senate districts are apportioned. And it changed the number of legislatures in the state legislature, amongst other things. The reason why I mention all this now is because in the 1930s, the political situation in Michigan was changing, not because of structural changes that were going on in the state constitution, but because of broader national stuff. And I mentioned this a few moments ago, and I said I would get back to it, and I need to right now, because we're going to get into the hotel fire and we're going to get into the aftermath of the whole tough fire. But that aftermath is really hard to understand without this political background because it ended up resulting in a fairly substantial change in the political makeup of Lansing. So Lansing, um, part of Michigan, of course, had been uh, the state capital going all the way back to the 1840s, and therefore politics had established themselves in Lansing for almost 100 years by the time we get to the 1930s. And through that nearly 100-year period of time, the state had gone through the same political changes that were going on around the nation as a whole. And by the 1930s, what that meant was Michigan was a majority Republican state. I should say up to the 1930s, Michigan was a majority Republican state in terms of if you look at all the elections that took place and when the Republican Party was founded, which was right before the Civil War, through the 1930s, so it's a very long period of time, we're talking like 70 years in Michigan, the Republican Party had majorities in the state legislature and held the governor's office more times than it did not. So Michigan was a stalwart Republican state really from the time of the Civil War right through the 1920s. Now, 1932 changed that, or at least it started to change it. In Michigan, as in other places in the United States, the Democratic Party did very well in the 1932 election. And the reason why they did was because the economy was not doing very well. It was doing the exact opposite. It was doing very poorly. The 1930s, by the time we get to 1934, are the Great Depression in the United States. And it is a period of great economic uh, uncertainty, high unemployment, uh, a lot of business failures, and the political climate was 
very much unsettled from time to time because of the economic disruption caused by the Great Depression. So out of this, the United States as a whole undergoes a great political realignment in the 1930s where uh, voting groups that had voted Republican for sometimes generations going back switched. They started voting for the Democrats. And this started happening in, 19, in the state of Michigan in the 1930s too. So what you actually had in the 1930s was a competitive situation in Michigan politics. That's going to be important to our story here in the political aftermath of the Recurrence Hotel fire because when the special legislative session convened in December of 1934, the legislature was divided fairly evenly uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans. And in fact, 1934 had been a good year for the Republicans. They had recovered some of the losses they had suffered in the 1932 election. And as December the 10th, 1934 is just a, a little over a month after the election that had just taken place, politics is very much on the mind of the legislature. Now, with that little bit of a political uh, background, as well as a background of some other structural matters that were going on and we need to be aware of in Lansing in the 1930s, this gets us to the story of the hotel fire itself. And it's a very dramatic story. And the story goes like this. In the early morning hours of December the 11th, 1934, so it's Tuesday morning, the hotel is packed full of guests, many of whom are the legislatures, who just hours earlier had been in their post-individual uh, meetings with individual colleagues, members, all the sort of thing that one would expect from a legislature retreating into their after-hours spaces. Some guests in the hotel smelled smoke, and they were roused because of it. And so the knowledge of the fire spreading throughout the hotel room came from those who had first noticed the smoke, and it also came from some of the hotel staff, including a bellboy who the police interviewed after the fire was over and trying to investigate what happened. And in fact, this particular bellboy had been in contact with one of the state legislatures who was staying in the hotel. He, according to the police and fire reports that were issued out of the investigations that stemmed from the fire, he and one of the state legislatures, the bellboy and one of the state legislatures, had encountered one another in the hallway as the fire broke out. And the bellboy is reported to have told the legislature that there's smoke, there is a fire somewhere in this building, and I think it is coming from, and he pointed to and mentioned the name of the hotel manager, a uh, gentleman by the name of David Monroe. And David Monroe actually now, many years after the fact, and even in the uh, very short-term aftermath of the fire and the investigations that took place, David Monroe is believed to perhaps have even been the one who started the fire by carelessly tossing his cigarette after he had finished smoking it, and, well, he didn't put it out, and that seems to be what caused the fire, at least according to the investigations that took place after this fire happened. So, the fire is first noticed in the early morning hours, and eventually... 
The fire department is summoned through, you got it, the uh, alarm bell number 23, uh, the first being rain. And what unfolded very, very quickly was a fire of the most devastating consequences that you can imagine. The Kearns Hotel was built uh, in a way pretty common to the way commercial buildings were constructed at the time. It was a wood frame building that had a brick exterior. Much of the interior furnishments actually were uh, made of wood as well. And so once the fire broke out inside the building, the building basically burned from inside out. As fires oftentimes do, uh, after it had burned enough of the building that was no longer structurally sound, it became an extremely dangerous fire. And in fact, the reports that survive uh, of the fire and the effort that was made to fight it tell of the most horrific scene one can imagine of flames shooting dozens of feet high, in some cases into the air, and then of the walls being aglow and then collapsing inside with people uncertain as to the extent of life being lost. There were some reports of the day even of people jumping out of the hotel windows to try to save themselves from the uh, building burning up. The Kearns Hotel uh, had a notable first in Michigan, actually. It was the first hotel in the state of Michigan that had running cold water in all of the guest rooms. It was located right on the Grand River in downtown Lansing. And in fact, there's a historical marker there now that tells about the Kearns Hotel fire. And the crews came on scene of the fire and immediately realized the mess they had on their hands and the extent of the devastation. The Lansing Fire Department in 1934 had 97 men Two-thirds of those men, 72 of the 97, fought that fire, many of whom unfortunately were injured and some lost their life. It was a very uh, devastating fire for everybody involved in it. The guests who were in the hotel when it broke out, uh, people who were not in the fire department that tried to save some of the people who were fleeing the scene, and then, of course, the firefighters. Uh, those that nowadays we would call the first responders onto the scene. And the aftermath of the fire really does, uh, I think, more than anything, uh, illustrate the, the short and long-term consequences of when a terrible event like this happens and what it does to a community. And in the case of this fire, what it did not only to the community of Lansing, but to the state of Michigan as a whole. There were 34 people ultimately uh, who were killed in the Kearns Hotel fire. Seven of them were state lawmakers. 42 were injured, 14 of whom were uh, firemen. And five of the 32 who were killed, or five of the 34 who were killed in the fire were actually burned beyond recognition. And they are interred in, in a uh, mass grave in the very Mount Holt Cemetery that the Alarm Bell 23 Memorial now stands at. And I think, as you can imagine... In the immediate aftermath of the fire, people wanted to figure out what happened. They wanted to account for loved ones who may have been in the building. And unfortunately and sadly, uh, many of whom did not come out of it. 
So the immediate impact of the fire was many families who had their lives disrupted with loved ones who were lost in the disaster. And that, of course, should always be remembered. The lawmakers who died were John W. Goodwife, Vern Voorhees, Charles D. Parker, T. Henry Howlett, John Lydline, Donald C.S. and D. Knox Hanna. Uh, Hanna himself succumbed to injuries sustained in the fire uh, a few days after, but is counted as one of the seven lawmakers who perished in it. So this kind of gets us back to the political situation of the fire, the end result of it. Remember, the reason why the legislatures were in town to begin with, including those who stayed in the Kearns Hotel fire, was because of the special legislative session. And remember, from the beginning of the episode, the reason why the special legislative session was called was because of this disputed election over uh, the office of the Attorney General in Wayne County. So, the special legislative session was still in session. However, the scope of that session changed dramatically after the Kearns Hotel fire. And in fact, what the state legislature did in the days and weeks that followed the Kearns Hotel fire was, number one, arranged for special elections for the seven lawmakers' seats that were very tragically vacated due to the fire, and then also try to address the issue of the disputed election in Wayne County, and then also try to address or see if there is anything that the legislature could do in response to the fire itself. And out of all of those uh, renewed or different or changed uh, scopes of this special legislative session, we ended up having several things that resulted. The special elections that ended up being held out of necessity of the seven seats um, that were lost in the fire did end up being held. And the result of those seats was actually that the state legislature had a 50-50 split between Democrats and Republicans. The news of the fire spread very rapidly, not only around the United States, but actually even around the world. So the New York Times, uh, the Illustrated London News, British newspaper, as the name would, would suggest, uh, both had front page stories explaining uh, the fire, this horrible tragedy that had taken place in the Michigan capital. And newspapers all around the state of Michigan cover this and front page headlines for the day and the day after the fire. And then after that, the fire ended up being something that the lasting impact of it would only be realized really in the days and weeks and months and in some cases even years that followed. And along those same lines, actually, or along that line, one of the lasting consequences that came out of the Kearns Hotel fire was a law that the state legislature passed a version of it, by the way, it has stood on the books since, that mandated hotels in the state of Michigan be registered with the state fire marshal. Uh, any, Actually, any lodging, any uh, lodging building that has more than 10 beds in it, must register with the state fire marshal, agree to submit to annual inspections, agree to abide by a hotel safety code, and that is what the legislature did in the sort of immediate aftermath to try to, if they could anyways, come up with a response that would hopefully maybe 
prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. And as oftentimes happens in a situation such as this, people really did try very, very hard to get to the bottom of the fire, what caused it, and then to see if there's anything that could have been done to prevent it. And one of the things that resulted out of that, actually, is the idea that in a hotel, there has to be in place an evacuation plan. There has to be knowledge of where all the fire suppression equipment is in the building, of who's responsible for using it. Is it the fire department? Is it hotel staff? If it is hotel staff, do they know how to use it? Do they know where it's located? All the sorts of things that make up a really important part of a, of a building's fire evacuation plan nowadays and fire suppression plan. Uh, unfortunately, stuff like this oftentimes comes out of a tragedy. And that happens to be the case here. Last thing I'll say about the current hotel fire is to encourage all of you to think for a moment about fires and about what happens when a fire breaks out and what happens after a fire breaks out. All the people whose lives are changed from it. And we absolutely always want to remember the lives that are tragically lost in fires. But also we want to remember the lives that are impacted by the fire afterwards. And that includes the firefighters who truly have, if not the most dangerous job in the world, it's certainly got to be right up there with it. Next time you are contemplating such a thing, think for a moment about Alarm Box 23 in Mount Hope Cemetery. And think also for a moment about the Lansing Fire Department, all the fires that's fought through the years, and why a group like the Box 23 Club has to exist. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Connecting you with Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Academic success is a priority at Lansing Community College. And when assistance is needed, tutoring is available to all students. Resources include quick print stations, chemistry and anatomy models, microscopes, and several other tools to help students. Tutors may also be available for pre-scheduled after-hours appointments. To find out more about tutoring services, visit lcc.edu slash tutoring. Hey everyone, this is Jim Owens. Coming soon to LCC Connect is a new show called Headroom, where we talk about all things essential to mental health and well-being. To find out more, visit lccconnect.org. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know 
whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Lansing Community College's Business and Community Institute provides businesses with customized, synergistic trainings that realize logistical opportunity. Learn more about the future of business today at lcc.edu bci. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. It's time for Stars on Sports, a podcast radio show dedicated to sharing stories about our athletic program at Lansing Community College. LCC Athletics has a strong tradition. 23 national championship wins. Over 170 All-Americans. 19 MCCAA All-Sports Trophies. Stars on Sports will introduce you to individuals that have contributed to our program success and give you the backstory on what it takes to develop it. We'll also dive into and break down the topics and issues facing athletic departments across the nation and right here at LCC. This is Stars on Sports. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stars on Sports. As usual, I'm joined by our assistant athletic director and baseball coach, Stephen Cutter. And Stephen, today we're going to be talking about a myriad of topics, but, you know, we're, we're, as we record this podcast, it's, it's, we're starting another year. And as, you know, we've talked about in previous podcasts of the excitement of that. But yes. the, the one thing we forget are all the, the external things that impact our program or our sports and, and specifically um, what student athletes bring. I mean, we have a lot of new students coming on campus. We have a lot of returners, you know, it's usually a 50, 50 ratio to be, be generic. And, you know, and we think we know what we get with those returners and there's a lot of excitement or hope for our new student athlete that come on campus. But um, you know, there are a lot of things that can impact them. And, and we had a conversation that I would like to expand a little bit on that just, you know, are ones that even move here and have to deal with roommates and, and what, a, what a change that is for them. And, you know, they probably forget they probably had those same arguments with their brother and sister at home, whether they're messy or not messy. But when we're trying to compete for championships on and off the field, how, how much off the field does impact on the field performance and um, the good programs I think spend time dealing with that but we even talked about how much uh, how time consuming that can be you know for coaches if they really um, invest in their student athletes and one of my pieces of advice for coaches has always been to talk to every player every day and how difficult that would be for you when you have over 50 on your roster for this coming year but I know you do and I know you or you you break it down with your staff but but one of the ways by talking to every student every day is you find out things about them. And, and you know, I went to a great, as I tell you, a seminar 
years ago about the presentation was everyone has a backpack and they, everyone brings a backpack to work and what's in that backpack and are they going to open it up and let it out? And, and sometimes it just comes out. I mean, you, and you, or you can see it, you can read their face or you can body language. Yeah. Body mm-hmm. language is, is a huge you know, piece of evidence for that. So as we record this, we've had a lot go on in our area um, in the last week with, with storms and, and other things um, that have impacted the lives of our student athletes that, you know, it just takes you, you know, want to sit back and reflect and, and realize that, you know, there's a lot going on and it's much bigger than baseball or basketball or volleyball or running and challenging for a coach to try and deal with that yet still try and get them to perform um, at the highest level as we really start to get into our competition season. So do you think that's more common at the, the beginning of the season because you're getting to know student athletes and put a, uh, a team together or that it's pretty frequent throughout um, your ten, you know, tenure as a, in a program during the year? It seems like it's, it's pretty frequent. Really believe that if you're self-aware enough, you know, coaches, administrators or anybody else, they're, we're also wearing backpacks. And if something's going on at home or whatever that everybody's aware that affects, you know, your job and what you're doing or, or can affect it and can affect it really seriously. So the same applies for student athletes. And sometimes their, their issues that they have are extremely large. And sometimes they're really not that large, but they're, they're very important to them. And, you know, we, we've experienced a lot of different things just in the baseball program alone in the few short weeks that we've been going, we had players that couldn't get into apartments. So there's, their parents are paying for motels for them to stay in for a couple of weeks. Some, some players are sleeping on floors um, because, you know, there a lot of them do not are not from the Lansing area. You know, so they, they had to do a lot of that. Some now they're in apartments. They just got in a, a couple days ago and now they're dealing with the whole, uh, you know, a whole lot of other things. And then we go to the other side of the gamut and some kids are dealing with death. And, and you know, so it's it's a whole mixture. And I think once you start asking questions and start asking better questions, you start finding out more and, and then you, you get a lot more, but that, that also puts a lot more on a, a coach's plate once you start getting that. And I think that's a, a valid point. I, you know, as, as an athletic director, I worry about both our coaches and our student athletes, and I've seen it impact student athletes, but you're right. It also impacts our coaches. Our coaches are bringing backpacks every day. And, you know, I try and tell coaches, but I think it, it's tough in our business that you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And, and that's not always the case. And that's, you know, I think one of the positive things that came from the pandemic is the learning to, you know, that the, you know, the old, you know, tough mentality, you know, I can fight through anything that you have to listen to your body, or you have to find time to take care of yourself that, you know, coaches aren't really good at that because um, they spend so much time worrying about kids and worrying about um, the health and well-being and the performance of student athletes. And it's constant, as we've talked about before on this podcast, that it's, you know, 24-7, 365. I mean, you get calls at 730 in the morning and 11 o'clock at night, depending on, you know, what what's going on in your program, whether with the facility, whether with a student athlete dealing with something outside of your sport but you know coaches have that same thing and we forget about that sometimes and it's important it's more important for a leader i mean leaders have to take care of others that um 
it's hard, but you, you have to take care of yourselves. And, and I've experienced that before, you know, flying, which, you know, I used to be anxious about that. You know, if I'm anxious and something happened on the plane, it would, it would be hard for me to take care of that person because I, I, I'm worried about me. Yeah, so great example. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have to worry about coaches and it starts with them to be able to take care of student athletes. But the other thing that you hit on, too, that's interesting to me that I haven't processed is routine and the schedule. And I think there is a little more anxiety at the beginning of the season and, and figuring things out because you mentioned um, moving in and hotels and, and getting classes started. But, you know, we're a creature of habit. And, and after a week or two, you probably sit in the same chair every day in the classroom. You, you park in the same spot in the parking ramp. You know, and we practice at the same time every day, mostly, you know. So, you know, we become a creature of habit to try and eliminate some of those uncertainties. And, you know, you see a lot of coaches that um, try and really eliminate the peripherals and the external things so they can focus on that sport. But back to my original premise that that's not realistic that, you know, even as much as you try and put our student athletes in a controlled environment, you know, there are so many things unless they live in a bubble, which we did in the pandemic, you know, that, you know, there are things that are going to impact them getting a bad grade on a test, you know, breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend, I mean, can can ruin someone's day, most likely does ruin their day, and that impacts probably how they practice. And um, do you worry about it more against, you know, maybe certain, like, times of year, like, you know, at the end of the season, there's, you know, postseason events and that, that do you focus any differently on that or – yeah, we certainly try to limit distractions as much as possible at those crucial points, but trying to limit distractions throughout somebody's whole playing career or season or whatever is just not really possible. You know, there's so many things that come up and and without without mental toughness, mental performance, different things, they really really affect people. We had we had a group of players that came into a practice a about a week ago and they were pretty upset and they were upset because um once they got into their apartment the air conditioning wasn't working it was, it was when it was really hot you know and but everybody else was just their apartment so there was just four of them affected you know so it was a big deal to them you know and so you're just not going to prevent all that stuff but it's more about not what happens to you but how you're going to respond to it and it's and that's a great saying but it's super challenging and you have to work really hard at that too because you know somebody smashes your thumb with a hammer and you got to respond to um that's okay i know you didn't do it on purpose it still hurts and you got to figure out how to how to deal with that and again we we've, we've talked a lot about ero you know event plus response equals outcome and you know the, the how stressful that can be i mean as you know we've talked about too the coach's stress of of dealing with those those particular incidences that it wears on you you know that if your kid had a family member that had a significant injury or you know you can tell that they're hurting that that's that added stress to you so you have to handle that and if you have multiple because it's not just one kid on your team or more that it, it became it can become a, a time-consuming very difficult situation that um, does take away from the sport, but it, it is something you sign up for when you are um, working with 
student athletes, adults, people in general. And, you know, it can be the most rewarding experience if you look at maybe what the outcome is from that experience. And, and the nice thing about today in sports is, is the resources available um, um, at different levels too of, of the, you know, the, you know, like LCC had the good counseling staff, they have right. success coaches that, you know, there, there are different resources that we can help send them to though. It doesn't always fall on yes. the coach. And, and that's important. And you've seen it at the highest level of athletics where each program had their own within their program. Right. I mean, and you know, you in your program have a nutritional coach and a, a sports performance and a middle per, mental right. performance, um, people helping out. So, you know, it, that helps a coach if they have right. resources that available to them to, to help solve some of these issues or take some of that responsibility, um, off the coach because, you know, added stress is not a healthy for any part for your mind, your heart, your body, that if you want to, you know, be the best that you can be, which we, you know, talk about every day trying to, to be. And, you know, that's the other thing I think, you know, athletic does a nice job of helping participants learn for life. As we always talked about life lessons on this podcast. And that, again, that's my biggest reason why I'm in this field is I think it really teaches life lessons for these kids to be able to handle it, you know, losing a baseball game is much less and different than losing a, a family member, but yes. losing a baseball game can help them handle that adversity in life, hopefully. And as we talked about dealing with weather events, that the more practice you have of it, the better you get at it. You know, the better I get at parking, the more practice I, I have at it. And <laughs> right. there's a lot of people now that the parking ramp's full that need some practice at it. But, you know, the same with, you know, like we talk about in Michigan, you know, how different in Lansing compared to the West side of how much snow and how much you deal with and how much different it is down South. If they get a, a trace of snow, they're right. like panicking. And, right. and, and we experienced that some of this, this last weekend with the, the wind and the storm that Tornadoes. came through. And, and you were in a tornado in a press box, right? I it's, was, it was scary. I was wow. at the Mason football game on Thursday night and I went up to help them out in the press box to close it. And by the time I, got was able to get out of there i couldn't because the storm was coming in thankfully the storm was going north to south instead of east to west or west to east or i think i would have been blown across the football field it's one of the scariest events i've been in and i've been in many different weather issues in, in my tenure here but that was it was that was a bad storm and so if that happens again on thursday or friday night say mason's playing at home again which i don't know if they are but would you do anything differently no i mean you know like my family was mad at me for helping out when I wasn't even supposed to be working, but that's just the nature. I want to help people out. So I went up there to help take care of that particular area. I would, you know, you don't know, it came in fast. I mean, that's, you know, again, usually something does. that, yeah, you know, and, does. And you've been there with in weather with, mm -hmm. you know, baseball games and there's sometimes you get to your car before it pours and there's sometimes you're drenched by the time you get there. And we, I would last year in baseball, I got drenched yeah. running to the, the concession area. And so it happens in our, you try and minimize that the more, um, you're in it, you, you, you get better at it. And, you know, the technology helps us with the apps on our phones and such, but, and, you know, we can debate as we've talked about, well, you know, if someone acted soon enough or not soon enough mm -hmm. to, to make right. that happen, but it's still scary regardless. And, and so you think, well, you're done with it that night, but no, you know, now there's no power you know, fences are down and, 
you know, you got to figure out how to, you know, they had to move the game to a different facility the next day. And, and we've been there. You have to, you, again, problem solving. And that's another thing we like about this business is that you got to figure out how to get it done. Out. So, and you were at that game, but you were able to, the, to get out before. And I there was, co- my wife wasn't, but right. I was. So, yeah. See, they're know. back to the <laughs> conversation about what kind of yeah. husband you are. Yep. Gotta, <laughs> gotta get out. <laughs> yeah, I know. But in their cars still sitting in there because they, they're probably safer sitting in the parking lot than mm-hmm. trying to get home. But in this business, you know, you, you don't ever want to say you see it all, but a lot of things do happen that are out of your control that you, you still have to handle. And, and it, as you and I have talked about, accept that reality of where it is. And, and that's your starting point on how to handle moving forward and, and making the best of it, even if it's not what you want it to be. Right. And that's so true about your season too. Right. Um, talking about making the best of it. I, is Urban Meyer a pretty good coach in your eyes? Well, that's, I'm not the biggest fan of okay. Urban Meyer. I mean, he's been a successful coach. He's won national championships. I, I bring it up because Swamp Kings is on Netflix right now, and it's it's very, very popular. I think it's number two right now, most watched, and crazy that I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, very interesting to watch that, and there's a, a lot of the student-athletes that I've spoken with have watched it as well. And I've heard it, the same. I, I think one of the more amazing things to me is they've all given me their, or us, their perspectives on that, mm-hmm. and they're all significantly different mm-hmm. in their perspectives of, of what they've watched, and they all watch the same thing, which I think goes back into, like, the, you know, police used to talk about this in, in training and stuff that you could, so you could have an event and seven people could see it and they could interview all seven people and they would get different descriptions of what happened, what they were wearing, who did it, you know, stuff like that Mm -hmm. and how inaccurate that, that can be. But the perception too, is you think that you're watching something that is pretty black and white, whether it's with the Swamp Kings or anything else, Mm -hmm. a game that's a contest that's taking place in our gym or anything else. And people have extremely different perspectives. And and that's what crazy. I love about sports. And I can't wait to watch Swamp Kings, even though I'm not a big Urban Meyer fan. I still like learning from those things and learning like what made him a successful coach on the field, I think. you know, And, and he's got some great leadership qualities. I just think he just brought a different perspective. And my own opinion is, you know, he was from a different conference that recruited and did things differently and brought that mentality to the Big Ten and changed some things. And there's no right way or wrong way. I mean, unless you're breaking rules, but you know, that's one of my favorite things about sports is like you and I could be sitting and watching a game unless they were watching a football game. And I could say, that's the worst offense I've ever seen. And you could say, no, that's the best defense I've ever seen. And, you know, and just, just the, the totally different perspective of, of that contest and what people walk away feeling from. And, and it, it creates fanaticism. It, it creates um, great discussion and conversation that, Again, it, I consider it the best reality on TV, and and that's cool that that it pro, it provides that, and it it's it done that throughout time. You know, back to the, the Romans with gladiator fighting or circuses or the Olympics. That you know, it's a big entertainment part of our society, and one of the main reasons why is just you know one of my um, favorite quotes of all time is it's 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 not good to see the world through one set of eyes, but realistically we see the world through one set of eyes and, and it's contradictory, but um, 
we, your point. we seek less to understand and more to be understood. And when you can kind of flip that or try as, as hard as you can to, to flip that piece, you see different perspectives and, and it might not necessarily align with yours, but you can actually see it. You can feel it a little bit. You can feel when you can have a little bit of empathy when the air conditioning is not working and it's 92 degrees. You know, mm -hmm. you can feel that a little bit because you, you've been there at one point or another, maybe not in that situation, but a different. You can have some empathy when kids are dealing with death or, or anything else in between those two things. And you can feel that a little bit versus trying to be understood. You can you can work on trying to understand. Well, about back to even the perspectives on swapking, your experience, your nature, your nurture, the things that you bring to the table that help you look at things will help lead to what you see. And if, you know, if you grew up a Florida fan, you would like Urban Meyer. If you grew up maybe not liking Florida, you might not like it I don't as know. well. I don't know. If, I mean, he I'm only, just, he, an example. I think he only won one national championship, right? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. yeah, and his last few years there weren't very good. So no, I, I think if you're, of field, I think you're field for, issues, but he won uh, one at Ohio State too, though. I right, believe. but if you're a Florida but, fan, your standards at UF were at least in those times were much higher. So only winning one wasn't enough. I think Urban <laughs> in in one of those is like you know now that we've won a national championship. I'm just going to have a lot of joy in my coaching and everything. And because it slayed the dragon <laughs> and things will, things yeah. will be easy moving forward. And he was uh, talking about it in retrospect and he said, oh, I was so wrong thinking that. Well, we, we've talked about that, about, right. you know, when you win something at a high level, is it, are you satisfied or do you want more? Is it what you thought it would be? And that's about more about, the standards off the scoreboard than on the scoreboard that, you know, it's harder to win that second one. People believe, you know, and absolutely. And, and, but and we take for granted winning with, that first one. Not, with, not how many coaches have won a national championship. Very you know? few. Exactly. Very few. You know, so he got more than a lot of college football mm -hmm. coaches out there. So, right. um, but, but yeah, if, I look if you're, if you're eating something you really like and you take one bite, are, are you just going to take one bite? Well, you, if you're going after something that you really want, which it might be excellence or, or a championship or, you know, a 4.0 or whatever, and you get one, uh, do, do you just want one bite or do you want a couple bites of what, what you really want? And and that's that's why it looks like that. Well, that's very interesting because I'm competitive, and I would think Urban Meyer's competitive that one is never enough. I'm always like, if you're looking forward or looking backward of, of wanting that next one, but accomplishing something of that magnitude, you know, could be, you know, a lot. And you've been there, you know, like um, being relieved instead of, you know, like mm -hmm. excited just because of the pressure of, you know, back again to the where we yes. started the the mm -hmm. outside, the external factor mm -hmm. that that impact, you know, what is on or off the field. There's a lot in people's backpacks. There sure is. So again, what a great conversation as usual. Unfortunately, we didn't get our buddy Dedalion in today, but we will next time. And until then, go Stars. Stars on Sports is recorded live at the WLNZ studios. Engineering and production assistance are provided by Dedalion Lowry. You can listen to this episode and other episodes of Stars on Sports on demand at lccconnect.org. To find more information about our athletic program, visit lccstars.com. Thanks for listening. Go Stars.
examining the issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Coming in October to the Black Box Theater, Lansing Community College presents Isaac's Eye by Lucas Nath. This play tells the story of a young Isaac Newton exploring his dreams and longings and what drove this rural farm boy to become one of the greatest thinkers in modern science. Performances October 6th through the 14th. For more information, visit lcc.edu slash showinfo. Hi, I'm Lisa Alexander, and I host a show called Who's That Star on LCC Connect. This show is all about an inside look at the LCC community where you get a chance to meet our faculty and staff, plus learn about their passion projects at work and at home. You can catch Who's That Star here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org. As a veteran of the United States military, I can finally get the opportunity to enjoy special events, like a date with my wife, or going out together with my family and friends. Things that we couldn't afford, thanks to Vectix. Every empty seat at a concert, a game, motorsports, or a play is a missed opportunity to say thanks to a veteran and service member. We can help. We can give our veterans a special event where they too can create their own cherished memories. Find out how by visiting www.vettix.org. That's www.vettix.org. Find out how you can make a difference in a veteran's life. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply prior credits toward their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash youbelong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Welcome to Community Combos, a podcast and radio program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in Lansing and around mid-Michigan. This is Dudalian back on the convo once again, and joining me in the studio today is Adriana Lopez Ellis and Elena Herrera. Did I get it right? You did. I did. Elena, I uh, appreciate you coming in to talk with us a little bit about what is coming up, as I understand it, at the Lansing Mall, right? Yes, it is. And what exactly is this? It's the Latino Business Expo. So we are trying to highlight Latino-owned businesses. Um, and what better time to do it, you know, than right now? Right, Hispanic Heritage Month going on, and and that starts mid September all the way through mid October, right? September fifteenth through October fifteenth. Yes. Okay, so somebody uh, stops in. What exactly can they expect to see here as far as businesses go? Let's start there. We have a variety of vendors um, that are going to be attending from food to retail. We have business services for um, insurance, tax services, and we have a lawyer out of is it Detroit? Yeah, it's an attorney uh, firm. Yep, yeah. out of Detroit. For... Who is Spanish speaking? Yes. So that's awesome. Um, 
So it's going to be a little bit of everything, just celebrating all of these Latino-owned businesses, and it's going to be a good variety. And it sounds like it's really family-friendly, and that's why I said, you know, the, the businesses, of course, but there's other stuff that you guys have got going on here, and this is really cool. What else can people expect? So we're going to have cultural performances, a bounce house, um, face painting for the kids. Um, you know, when you think of anything Hispanic, Latino, like it's very family. You're thinking family, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, like tight knit things. So we wanted to attract something that, you know, is family friendly for the kids and obviously for the people so that they can get more exposure to the resources that we have right here local. Okay, very cool. And, and I assume like the face painting with a little bit of a Hispanic uh, flavor to it, uh, you know, when you go to do this or no? No, that's a good idea. <laughs> we'll reach out to our face painter and you know. See if you can make a little bit of that happen. Yeah, for sure. So this is happening Saturday, October 7th. What time can people stop out and see this? Uh, so it's going to be for the hours 12 to 7 um, p.m. So we're going to start right at noon. Um, so, yeah, we hope to see, you know, everybody there. Okay. And uh, what exactly has got you to inspired to do this each and every year? Because this is not the first year, right? This is it the is. first Oh, this year. is the first it year. It will be, yeah. But we definitely are already planning for next year and what <laughs> we're going to be doing. So. Cool. So you're getting a great reaction for this and, yeah. and, and a good expectation. Mm-hmm. So what got you inspired to do it this year then? I think, you know, speaking for myself, um, and I, I'm sure you can, you know, attest to that is that, you know, our, our Hispanic heritage. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always been very, very uh, interested in learning about my culture. I grew up um, uh, with immigrant parents from Mexico. So mm-hmm. being bilingual um, just kind of opened doors for me that I didn't really think that I was a part of before. Um, so, you know, new opportunities and at least that's what flourished my business. And now I'm in real estate. And again, a lot of my clientele is Spanish speaking. Very good. Elena, you uh, want to echo that sentiment or you yeah, got something more to add to that? A little bit more. Um, I work with a lot of small businesses, not just in the Latino community, but just small businesses in general. I have a uh, bookkeeping business, Ledger Ally, and that's where my passion lies in is working with these small businesses, helping them grow and connecting them with resources that will make their business flourish. And um, as when I was younger, my dad has a wholesale business and just watching him day and night put in all the work and effort. That's kind of what inspired me to want to work and help those small business owners because it is a lot. And so that's where my passion definitely lies with is all those small business owners. <laughs> Very cool. And, you know, and I struck out with the, uh, the the face painting, but I assume the dance performances, we can expect something of, of Hispanic heritage, right? Oh, for sure. Um, we're going to have Ballet Maria Luz. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the name, right? Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. She no. was actually um, a former dancer. Okay. For them. Yep. All right. If somebody wanted to get more info, how do they do that? They can follow us on Facebook at 517 Latino Business Expo. And we actually have our contact information on there as well. So the main organizers are me, St. Paul Benavides, Elena Herrera. Um, They can contact any of us too. Very good. And was there any other info we wanted to get out there before we uh, wrap this up? Come and support. Lansing Latino Business Expo. This sounds like a really cool event, and I appreciate you guys coming in to talk about it. Again, Saturday, October 7th is when it happens, uh, 12 p.m. to 7 p.m., and that is going to be at the Lansing Mall. Adriana, Lana. Thank you. You've been listening to Community Combos, a program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in our community. To listen to this episode on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org or find us on your favorite podcast platform. 
If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Community Combos, email us, lcc-connect at lcc.edu. And thanks for joining the combo. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.